Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to another episode of the Adventures in Advising podcast. Thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. Each episode, we strive to bring together the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and of course, advising stories. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. Without further ado, here's the latest episode, and as always, keep advising. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Adventures in Advising. It's our fifth episode of 2021, and we have three great interviews for you to enjoy. And hey, greetings and salutations. That was Colin Cronin. I'm Matt Markin, and let's dive into the first of our three interviews. First up is Dr. Charlie Nutt, Executive Director of NACADA. Charlie and I talk about various topics from the upcoming NACADA virtual region conferences to his retirement to talking about the NACADA Executive Office staff. So here we go. have some Nakata virtual region conferences coming up and we thought who better to talk to than Dr. Charlie Nutt, the executive director of Nakata. Charlie, how have you been? Doing great, man. How are you? I've been fantastic. And, you know, with these virtual conferences coming up, is there anything that you're excited about with these or anything you want to highlight about the regional conferences? Absolutely. I just think this is a great opportunity for folks to really learn and to network and to connect with everyone. Um, you know, we've all talked about all the the negatives of the pandemic and the and the negatives of virtual. And I think one of the things that is so exciting about this virtual opportunity is it really does give people the chance to really choose or what works best for their, their own calendar. So, you know, I might be in Region 9 like you are, but that date really doesn't work. And in the past, it meant I just couldn't go to a region conference. Now you could choose any of the region conferences. So we're really encouraging folks that we we really hope you can go to your region, but if that date doesn't work, take a chance to go to any of the five conferences because it's a real chance to learn. And that's something that virtually or in person people haven't always had a chance to do. And then the other piece that's really so exciting about the virtual conferences, especially at the region level, is just the opportunity to network and to, to talk with people. You know, on our old campuses right now, we're so isolated. You know, that's about what all we do virtually. You're still many times in your house by yourself. So having the opportunity to really connect with others to to kind of, you know, get your own energy level back up by connecting and working, I think is really important. Um, and the fact that the region conferences are so much smaller, you really have a chance to really have some one-on-one conversation with folks at the region conferences that you think you may not be able to do at the annual virtual um, and I think we all can agree that the annual virtual was outstanding, but it was still very large. Mm-hmm. And here, when you've got a smaller number, you can have spend a whole lot more time talking with folks. I think the other factor, Matt, that is, I think is so exciting because I've attended all the 10 regions in my career. And that is that so many times we don't really understand the culture of other, of other conferences or get to meet people from other parts of the country. If I go just to Region 8, I meet just the people in, in the Region 8 states. But if I have the opportunity, if I live in Washington State, to go to Region 1 and to really connect with the people of the Northeast, what a great learning experience that is for me. 
And so I think the virtual opportunity is really an opportunity for all of the profession, not just the kind of members, because we hope it'll be new people coming to the kind of for the first time, but to really choose the region conference that, be, that best fits their calendar, best fits what works for them, and then the opportunity to really connect with those folks at a, at a real one-to-one level that the region conferences allow. Yeah, a lot of great tips there and great pointers with attending these region conferences, especially the different dates that are available. So you don't just have to go to the one that's in your region. But you mentioned the annual conference. And I mean, having attended the annual conference virtually, I thought it was fantastic. I learned a lot. But let's say folks that did attend the annual conference and you know it was virtual and now they have the virtual upcoming region conferences and maybe they're zoomed out or they're like well if i learned a lot from the annual one do i want to attend the region one or maybe wait for the annual one coming up anything you want to say to that absolutely i think i, I think you're right man i think we're all zoomed out uh, in many ways with just what we do every day mm-hmm. but i kind of go back to the fact that that we are still working in isolation and so I think the really the real benefit of the region conference is the small aspect of it connected with each other. I also think the sessions at region conferences are much more um, examples of things you can do, much more hands-on, much more here are real strategies you could use at those types of sessions. And so I really do think even if you were at the annual, what you're going to learn is a totally different type of, of session, totally different type of focus but also that connection one-on-one in a small group. Um, the, the social wall at the annual conference was amazing. I think people connected in, in ways they probably never connected before. You know, I think back at when I first came to my first annual conference back in the 90s, I probably talked to maybe two or three people because I didn't know anyone. What was really exciting about the, the annual conference was the social wall was an opportunity for all people to connect for the first time, even people who were brand new. There was not that I'm in the corner by myself because I don't know anybody. I could talk to anybody. And I think at the region conference, that's going to be even more powerful because you're going to have, you know, 400 people you can talk to compared to 2,000 people and really begin to have that conversation and work with that. And so I would just encourage folks that even if you were able to come to the annual I think you're going to learn so much more at the region as well as have that interaction. And I think we all need right now, you know, we've been through one semester of, oh, hell, what are we going to have to do? We got to do it quickly. Last spring, we went to fall, which was, I think, much more organized. I think advisors were, were advisors were on target this spring. I think more than anyone else on campuses. You have all heard me say that before. That was the advisors who made the campuses function last spring. But even fall, we were even more together than we were in the spring. There's a point in which we think, oh, it's going to be over soon. We can get back, and we're still doing what we were doing. I think we need this interaction. I think we need to connect with people. In Dakota, we like to see folks. We like to give that hug. We like to connect. We like to to, to see the people face to face. We can't do that. What better way to do it than in small groups be able to, to connect with people you know already, but also meet new people from across the country and so I just and, and, and Canada. And so I just think it's a great opportunity to do that. I mean, I'm going to be going anyway to, the, to this virtual conference for Region Eight and Nine. But if I was on the fence of it. 
you would have just convinced me right now with that answer. <laughs> but even if now people want to go to the virtual one of the virtual cars or multiple ones, one thing's going to come up is budget. And Absolutely. so at a lot of institutions, there's a lot of budget constraints. And as much as professional development might be something that is important at a lot of these institutions that institutions want to support, what is what money is spent on that priority is not as much of a priority. So advisors that may want to go or administrators that, you know, want to send their staff, but they're concerned about budget. Is there anything you can offer to, to them with that? Absolutely. I think one thing is we have the scholarships. I encourage people to really apply for scholarships to the region conferences. But I think the other factor is we kept it very low cost. And I think one of the things that I'm hearing from advising directors is, yes, our, our professional development costs have been lowered, but they've been lowered in a way that I couldn't send three people like I used to to a region conference and pay registration, hotel, travel, food. I can't do that for three, but I could really do, I could send five for half of that cost to a region. So I think it's really communicating that that it is low cost. We've got this limited amount amount of professional development money, but let's use it at something that's going to help the entire staff and bring those together. You know, one of the things that I've talked to a couple of directors about is because of the, the five different conferences that they are purposely sending one to region one and two, one to two, eight, nine, one to four and seven, uh, because they really want people to learn from all different types of things. Mm-hmm. If you only send people to one region, like we've done in the past, you learn what happened at that region. Mm-hmm. But what's happening at another part of the country or at another university that's very different from yours because it's a different region or different location, what a great opportunity for the campus to really think about that. So if we're thinking about sending four people, why not send to four different conferences and then they really get to get that piece. The other factor that I'm sure folks are going to look at me like I'm crazy, but I'll go ahead and say it um, because y'all know I'll say anything, um, you know, is the fact that for half for less than half of what you were spending for a region conference when you had to do it in person, you could go to two region conferences. And so what a great opportunity to really build even more connections with people, but to learn so much more. So if it's an opportunity for you to be able to, to get funding for two of them and be able to gain so much more, I encourage people to at least think about that because we need to connect more than ever with each other. We need to connect with professionals from across the, the North America and hopefully the globe. Um, but with everyone, we need that connection. And the more we can do that, the better off our students are going to be because we're such better advisors. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Yeah, and even with virtual now, like being able to save money on not having to do hotel, food, and only being able to send one or two folks, now you can actually 
send multiple to these region conferences. And yeah, like you said, it will be less expensive. But speaking of conferences and upcoming mm -hmm. ones, even after the region conferences, a lot of people are thinking about Athens for the International Conference, as well as Cincinnati for the annual conference. Is there any updates regarding those two conferences? I'll tell you what I know. Uh, once again, y'all know I always tell you the truth, what I know. Um, we're working with the, the country of Greece and with Athens um, mm -hmm. and the university um, to see what their plans are going to be as far as allowing us to come back into the, the country this at this point. Um, they're still very limited. They've just moved off of the low, the highest level. Beginning of February, if you wanted to go out to walk your dog, you had a text. You had to send a text number two to say you were going to be out of your house in the, in the streets for so many minutes to get approval to go. Uh, that's now lowered some, but a big point will be what can the university do? And so our goal is by April 1st to be able to make a decision about Athens. Um, to be able to work with the university, see what they think they can do, and then come to some joint decision about what the provost there, the president believes they can do, and what we can do within that. At the at the very lowest, even if we're there in person, there'll still be a virtual component. If we need to go virtual, we'll work with it in that way. But we hope by, by April 1st to be able to make that decision and be able to, to put that out there. For the annual, we're doing the same thing. We're working with the convention center and the hotels in, in Cincinnati. We don't know, quite frankly, uh, what the vaccine is going to do, how that may open days more quickly than it has been. Presently, if it were today, the convention center is in Cincinnati would only allow a 25% a 25% occupancy rate, mm -hmm. which would mean we might be able to do a conference day for 800 people. And so we're simply waiting to see what the state of what the, the state of Ohio and the city, what their numbers will look like um, by summer and make a decision within that. We hope to be able to make it earlier than we did Puerto Rico because we may not have some insurance issues or the, those places may not be there. But our goal is to make it as quickly as possible so folks can move forward. I'm excited to say that the um, submissions for annual conference have come in beautifully. Um, we're going to have probably close to a thousand submissions, which is just barely under what we had for um, Puerto Rico and um, Louisville the year before. And so even virtual people are still excited about presenting. They're still excited about being a part of the conference within those pieces. I think the conference proposals are really coming in well, which is, which is a good indicator that regardless of if the conference can be virtual or in person, advisors need to have a Nakata fix. We need yeah. that Nakata connection. And I think that we'll have that with all of these events we're doing. All right. So conference is still happening. We'll just see what kind of mode that it is presented in. But it, as long as it's a safe decision, that that's what's going to matter most. Um, and, and we just had the, the assessment institute last week. We had 169, I think, people there. Nice. We had limit registration because of the number of faculty we could get and all the you know, Zoom moves you have to have in that type. We have the um, assess uh, administrators starting this coming week. We've got 140 there. And so our numbers are still doing well for folks coming to, to our virtual meetings, which is outstanding. And so we're really looking for that to continue because 
folks need this professional development. This is a time they need to learn from each other. They need to learn what you're doing virtually compared to what you were doing in person. Uh, we need to talk a lot more about how do we communicate to our deans, to our provosts, what advisors are really doing virtually, because I don't think they understand it. And I so how do we help administrators learn how to do that? How do we help advisors who come to region conferences gather those those strategies for how to do those things? So this is really an important time for that professional development piece. Yeah. But also upcoming is your retirement that threw a lot of people <laughs> off guard because we thought Charlie Nutt was going to be part of Nakata forever. How hard of a decision was it to it was make a that very, decision? It was a very, very hard decision, Matt. Um, as, as many of you know, I just turned 65. And so even though I look 40, I know um, <laughs> I, I, I am of age to do that. Um I think the biggest factor for me in not only turning the age I'm turning and thinking about the future, but the board is doing just some amazing work under um, Cecilia Oliveris and, and Megumi um, from, from Hawaii and the whole board and really looking at where does the association need to be in the next 10 years. And so they've worked on a draft for a new vision and mission for the association, a new set of strategic goals. Those will be talked at at every region meeting. We hope that you'll come to that Nakata Listen session to give us input on those. Um, but as the associations think about the next 10 years, it was a good time for them to have an executive director who will guide them through it. Um, as I said to Dean Mercer, I love the association, but I don't want to work till I'm 70. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love what I do, but I don't want to work till I'm 70. So it's like I need to make a commitment to stay another five years to help move this forward it was a good time for a new person to come in. Um, you know, I've been at Nakata for 19 years and, and been associate director since 2007. It's always good for new blood and new folks to come in. So um, I've loved it. I've loved everything about the association. It's been the best decision I've made in my life to come from Georgia to Kansas and, and work at the executive office. I will miss all of you a great deal. Um, I will say this year is a little more difficult because I don't get to see you again. So, you know, a lot of you that I'm saying goodbye to, I won't see you anymore. So, you know, I, I'll talk to you, Matt. I'll see you online. And if I come to California just to see you, for, <laughs> you just need to come to California, go up and down the state and see everybody. Yeah. You get to traveling again. Um, but that'll be a little more difficult. because I'm not going to actually be able to hug folks and, and say thank you for all you've done for me. Um and end up with the association. So, but it, but it was a good time. It was just a good time with the changes that are going on and to help that move forward. Yeah, you could do like a retirement show on the road. Do a retirement show, cost and figure out how I can make that happen. I have talked to my, my um, retirement guru. She's going to have enough money to do that. So we'll work on that. <laughs> a, a lot of musicians like Cher and Elton John have done those, although Cher has. Retired, unretired, and retired yeah, again. So I don't do share. I'll just keep going <laughs> on and on like share did. Maybe that'll be one of them. <laughs> and as we end this, the Nakata Executive Office. So Nakata EO, a small but mighty office filled with dedicated employees that have literally taken on multiple responsibilities, extra responsibilities over these last 12 months, being heavily involved in various ways for the virtual conferences, institutes, among others. What do you want to tell the EO staff? Oh, my God. You know, I've said to them for 20 years that I said to them when I was a member that 
there's no association whose executive office does what we do. Um, you know, I think a lot of people sometimes say, what does the EO do? And if you think of every single thing that you do on your campuses, we do. We recruit new members. We do orientation for new members. We help new members be retained. We provide classes, professional development. We provide publications. We do everything that it takes. How many, how many um, faculty and staff do you have at your campus? A lot. <laughs> 800, 900, Probably we do more. all of that with 21 people. Yep. And so it's just amazing. Um, I, I can't, I, I simply don't have the, I, I don't have the words because they're tired of me saying it probably. Don't think I mean it anymore. But it, it, it's just amazing what our EO staff has done. I have to say for the region meetings, Ben has done a, a huge job. Deb, Joan Cruz, Michelle Holiday is amazing and she has picked up so much over the past year and worked with all of these piece of people um jennifer rush with the institutes it, there's no one in the office that i can't just brag on i do want to take a moment though for those who don't know and i want to take a moment to really thank just i don't know how to purely thank her enough and that is rhonda baker rhonda's retiring in another month and Rhonda, uh, when I came to the executive office, was working on the annual conference with Nancy Barnes. She did a wonderful job. Then she took over the annual conference. And then a few years ago, she really wanted to focus on international. So she's really made that working. I'm not sure what my life is going to look like after March, not to have Rhonda. And so I just want to thank her so much for what she's done. Bev Martin, who's done all the publications and handles the the communications and all of that. Bev's retiring in June. Bev will be phasing for another year, but she's still retiring. So to Bev and Rhonda, I just want to say the two of you, I love you. You have done amazing work for the association and every member deserves, I mean, really needs to thank the two of you for all you've done. Um, it's just amazing. And then I just have to say for folks who haven't heard me say it enough, we could not do what we do if it were not for the support of Dr. Dean, Dr. Debbie Mercer. To have a dean who who understands what Nakata is and supports us, to have a dean who's willing to to go to bat with the provost when we have a hiring freeze, to say we still need these positions and they have to be filled. Um, when he's saying no to other places, but she's been able to get all of these to be filled again. Um, Dean Mercer's amazing and so the association owes so much to her for all she's done and my calling before her uh, within that so yeah I've, I've worked with lots of schools I've worked in lots of places I've never worked with a team of folks who are this dedicated as this group so thank you Matt for allowing me to do that because they are an amazing group of folks Stay with us we'll be right back You love listening to podcasts but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, and they're going to continue to do amazing things in, in the EO. And 
I bet people still can't believe you're retiring, but Charlie, we, we appreciate everything that you've done, everything that the EO staff has done and will continue to do. Thank you so much for this. Thank you so much, Matt. Take care, everyone, and see you at the Region Conference. I'll be at all five. I'll look for you. Thanks so much. Thanks to Charlie for always making the time to speak to us and for his continued support. It's very much appreciated. To everyone attending Nakata's pre-conference workshop week, I hope you enjoyed the sessions. For those presenting this week, I'm sure you'll be fantastic. And kudos to all those who have put so much time and effort into making it all possible. Yes, and next up is Dr. Chantalia Johns from Wayne State University. We talk about a variety of advising-related topics, including interprofessional education and teaching. So let's take a listen. All right, up next is Dr. Chantalia Johns, who is the Director of Continuing and Interprofessional Education and a lecturer at Wayne State University School of Social Work and leads the development and administration of continuing education credits to social workers and allied health professionals. She also works to promote interprofessional education and dialogue among social workers. Dr. Johns is also a licensed social worker, mental health prevention educator, and a certified child and adolescent trauma professional, and before her current role was an academic services officer three with the School of Social Work for nine years. As a mixed methods researcher, Dr. Johns' work includes understanding the neurobiology of trauma and the social determinants of poor mental health among urban African-American youth from adolescence to early adulthood. In addition to this work, Dr. Johns studies the use of risk reduction interventions in education settings. Dr. Johns has a doctorate in education with a focus in leadership and policy studies from Wayne State University and a bachelor's and master's degree in social work from Wayne State. She has graduate certificates in college and university teaching and in mixed methods research from the University of Michigan. An amazing bio, and I think it's going to be a great conversation. Thanks for joining us on this podcast today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be a part of uh, this episode. Well, we're delighted to get the opportunity to to chat to you. And as Matt said, I think we uh, will have plenty to discuss today. <laughs> but we we mentioned before recording, you very kindly told us that you you have listened. So you probably are aware that we usually open up our um, our interviews where we ask um, the person how they came to to work in higher education. Uh, what Kevin Thomas has dubbed the origin story. Um, so I suppose if uh, if we could ask you, how did you you come to, to work in higher ed? Was it something that you always wanted to do? And, and how did it lead to, to your current position? So um, I in my master's program, I took a course in social work careers in higher education. Um, when I was in graduate school, I wanted to work um, with children in the child welfare system. But, you know, you have to fill up your uh, coursework with electives. And that one was being offered. And because I was pretty active on campus, I was like, well, that's something that's something interesting to take. So I wrote in the course, again, taught social work careers in higher education. And a part of the course, the professor had us develop proposals like um, a retention proposal and a um Another proposal, I believe it like looked at um, trying to meet an unmet uh, or or try to address an issue on campus, like an unmet need or something. And each time she would always select out of, you know, 30 students, she she would select um, a proposal that she thought would, was like worthy of being acknowledged. 
And so each one of those major assignments, she always chose one of my proposals. And one of them I was about addressing financial literacy on campus. And I, even though I tell this story in different settings, I still can't think of what the other proposal was. Uh, but when she kept acknowledging my proposals, it got me to thinking about a career in higher education, like indeed what, what the class was designed for. Um, but that wasn't really traditionally what, uh, when you go into social work, that's what you think about. But that class really got me to thinking of um, how I can use social work principles in supporting students. And um, so I graduated, got my MSW, and I was working with the state of Michigan in child welfare. Literally, probably uh, had gotten the job uh, and was there like for two weeks. And that professor, she was also the dean, um, assistant dean of the School of Social Work. So I, I can still remember this day. Uh, I was sitting in a Taco Bell line, uh, you know, like the drive through and she and she called. And she told me that there was a position um, in the School of Social Work. And she remembered my um, activism on campus and remembered that I, uh, the proposals that I submitted in her class. And she strongly recommended that I apply. And so that's how I ended up back, um, back at Wayne State and back in the School of Social Work. Nice. And one of your many roles is also a lecturer. And you teach a few classes. And... I'm sure you're aware of Rate My Professors. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen any of them that have comments on you. You know, I try not to look because I I, I, I want to stay uh, motivated in teaching. So I, I actually don't review them. Okay, well, I'm going to read a couple to you. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I think this will be great. I think this kind of sums up kind of what you give out in the world is, and then what your students kind of take in, they, they actually can see, okay, who you are as a person. And so this first one I'll read says, I love taking the SW1010 with Professor Johns. Um, she adapted very well to the challenges with COVID and was yeah. very accommodating and willing to work with students. And this coursework was not heavy, but you learn a lot. A lot of the in-class participation is applying the content to real work situations, which is very helpful in this type of field. Would highly recommend. And another one, Dr. Johns is so creative in her teaching each week. I look forward to seeing what the next class activity will be. She uses technology in a way that I have never seen done in a classroom. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I hope that I hope that once I get into the social work program, I am able to take her again. So I think first, I think these comments like these show the passion you have for your students. And I picked these two comments out because they address challenges with COVID and technology. So my question to you is, how was it for you to adapt to changes in teaching due to COVID? And what types of things did you incorporate to still have that engagement piece with your students? That's so funny you bring this up. My noon, um, the School of Social Work has a teaching, like a teaching club. And I, today was my time to do a presentation. <laughs> and so today I led a discussion around how to um, encourage motivation and accountability um, in your students. So I can talk about that. <laughs> I literally just talked about it a few hours ago. Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. <laughs> so first I'll say that I have taught online before and when I got my graduate certificate in college and university teaching we learned both like how to teach face-to-face -face and how to teach online so when we had to shift our our teaching to online that that wasn't something scary to me because I had already done it before and I learned the processes 
that um, effective teachers do to keep students in, engaged in the classroom. So um, shifting to today, uh, I led the discussion on how to keep students accountable and motivated. And um, a lot of the research just talks about really keeping students um, active by like assigning participation points to them um, in the online environment, like when they're going into a discussion board, uh, I mean, a, a breakout room, um, requiring them um, to have some sort of reflection piece that they bring back to the group and, and also having participation points attached to that breakout um, because that keeps students accountable. Um, having students uh, write reflections, uh, like individual reflections that they submit to you. That's, that way you can see that they're um, actually listening versus just have their camera just sitting there and they're off cooking lunch. Uh, so we talked about stuff like that. One of uh, my colleagues, uh, she brought up how she um, opens up her Zoom uh, like 15 minutes earlier. And you know how you normally, when you get to class as an instructor, you might get there a little bit earlier and students have a chance to, to kind of do that informal chit-chatting with you. She said she, she opens up her Zoom a little bit earlier and allows students to kind of have that informal chit-chatting with you. Because as you know, if a student doesn't um, feel engaged or feel like they belong or like that social bonding is missing, then they're less likely to be engaged in the class. So just looking for ways to still connect to students I think another one of my colleagues talked about popping in and out of the breakout rooms just to show students that they are invested in what they're talking about. So, yeah, that's what we talked about today. Um, so I could go on and on, but um, yeah. <laughs> Well, it's great that uh, I suppose you were able to to use it in today's uh, meeting and again uh, with us on, on the podcast. And I think there will uh, be some learnings in terms of um, what you have shared there. One of the things that I was interested in um, is your your work, I suppose, right now is the director of continuing and interprofessional education. And for listeners who might not be that familiar with interprofessional education, can you talk to us a little bit about what that is and about your work in the area? Sure. So when I was an advisor, um, I got interested in interprofessional education. And I it was in 2015, I started volunteering uh, with one of our interprofessional groups uh, that looked at homelessness in Detroit. And so every third Sunday, um, it was a group of social workers, um, social work students, um, first and second year medical students, pharmacy students, and then OT and PT students. Um, we would um, like the students would get together and then there were certain faculty that were assigned to go with the students. And so we would um, like the individuals who are experiencing homelessness, they would have their breakfast. And then before they left, the students were required to go up to them and tell them Wayne State was here and this is the services that we had to offer. And so I decided to volunteer with that group as a faculty advisor because, again, having my social work degree and always have had a passion for addressing issues of like inequality, issues of social justice, um, issues related to social welfare issues, particularly in Detroit. Um, I figured, you know, I work in the academy, but this would be a great way for me to give back. And so when I went, 
I just naturally, I, I just really enjoyed it. it um, I was telling someone, it kind of felt like I was providing a service to like my aunts and uncles, if that makes sense, because it's folks that, that look like the folks that grew up, that were in my neighborhood when I grew up in Detroit were there. So it was personal to me. So I just, I continued to volunteer. And at the time I wasn't the lead um, faculty advisor. Um, one of my mentors, Cassandra Bowers was leading the charge um, and she retired. And um, if you know anything about Dr. Bowers, she has no uh, shame in moving on to think, like pushing things straight to you. <laughs> so she felt I was ready um, as an advisor to take on leading that. Um, and I have to admit at one point it was a little intimidating because we, um, like, at first we, you know, like, we would do, like, social workers would, would present the assessment. The um, medical students would look at the physical health needs of the patient. And then we would come back as a group. And, you know, um, yeah, at some points, it, you know, when I first, and I'm like, you know, it was kind of like, do I have anything really to contribute? Because it was, like, fancy medical terms and uh, pharmacy uh, or medications that I'm like, I don't know what this stuff is, but, <laughs> uh, but, but eventually I saw the, um, the value in the social works perspective there. And then um, being and for me, being willing to speak up and adding that, like, have you guys thought about um, this particular social issue that may be impacting the client? So like their mental health issue may be preventing them from going to this free clinic that you guys keep keep referring them to on a daily basis. And really that's that's the beauty of interdisciplinary education because that's where um, individuals, individuals from different disciplines um, work together to either set goals, um, collaborate. Well, they will collaborate to set goals and um, give you up responsibilities uh, to uh, support a patient, a client, and even we can look at how we work in advising. We don't, well, hopefully we don't work in silos where if a student is uh, presenting a issue or concern, we're calling the deans of students office or we're calling the he campus health center. So interdisciplinary approach um, can be seen within our advising settings as well. But I just happen to be doing mine out in the community. Isn't that how it always goes? Someone leaves and then responsibilities kind of just get thrown upon someone. And in this case, yeah. you, but you go with it, right? And then you kind of figure it out and work on it as you go along and look where it is now, you know, so it shows a lot mm -hmm. of the great work that, that you've been doing. And a significant focus of your work has also been on to understand the risk and protective factors for developing a mental health or mental illness en route to college student leaves their planned program without a degree because of some emerging mental health concern. Mm -hmm. what, what, what is your work you know, in that? Like, what, what have you found out regarding this? And I guess, how can institutions or advisors work with their students who may have a mental health concern? So um, I approach this work uh, from, because I'm very interested in interventions um, that mm -hmm. support uh, or, or, or prevention efforts or, or early intervention efforts that support students um, and because I have an interest and do a lot of work around mental health um, and then just being an advisor for so many years and seeing the number of students who would come to me with those non-academic issues that were that were preventing them for, from progressing in, in college. 
So I, um, so when I got into my doctoral program, I knew that's what I wanted to focus on. I, I wanted to kind of merge my love for education and also um, my love for social work together. And it was a perfect match because I was able to write about and interview how faculty and academic staff respond to students with emerging mental health concerns. And on top of that, uh, while I was in my doc my doctoral program, um, I was I was a part of a large grant on our campus, and the grant allowed myself and two of my colleagues to provide training to faculty and staff on um, on how to respond. So, and I still do that from from time to time too. Where, um, well, through the Office of Teaching and Learning, I'm actually going to do one in a couple of weeks, but. <laughs> Um, so teaching faculty like how to recognize and then how to respond when a student is becoming unwell. So um, yeah, so hopefully uh, advisors and advising administrators really see the importance of addressing mental health and how that impacts retention of students. Because often, you know, mental health disorders are those hidden disabilities that you often don't see or they may manifest in different ways. Like you may see someone becoming angry or you may see a student um, who was very active. Now they have withdrawn and they don't wanna be bothered with this thing called higher education anymore, or they don't wanna be a part of this club anymore. And so one of just, if I were to leave a, a suggestion or something your, your listeners can take away is just always being willing to acknowledge what you see. So my favorite word is, um, say what you noticed. So I noticed that you um, received incompletes in all of your classes this semester and leaving it as an open-ended question so that students can have a space to talk and share um, and share what's happening. That's a, a really nice little nugget of uh, advice there, I think. And uh, I suppose maybe building a little bit on, on top of that, because you mentioned your interest in, in interventions. And when I look at some of the, the articles and, and the research you've done, there's it's clear that you have an interest in empathy, compassion. And you were, um, I think, a co-author on a, on a piece, Compassion, Fatigue and Self-Care for Academic Advisors in, in 2018. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And do you think, I suppose, what what has the impact of, of COVID been in uh, in relation to self-care for advisors? Yeah, so I, um, uh, advisors and advising administrators and really anyone working in the academy have had to show up in different ways, um, in different ways, but somewhat the same because we're experiencing this with our students. Um, and I have to often remind, you know, remind myself that like I'm experiencing this with them while I'm also trying to support them through it. Um, so, but that also brings its own set of set of set of challenges and set of stressors for an advisor who's trying to navigate their own life and um, again show up for their students. So I, I think just being kind to yourself, um, practice uh, doing things that bring you joy, uh, um, being willing to take a day off, even though it seems well for me, I, I always feel strange. Like I'm already sit, I'm already at home. Now I'm gonna ask for a day off. Like you know. Um, but that's still important. Like we still have to like take days off, even if, you know, we've been working at home for a year um, be because we're asked to not only because of COVID, but because of the um, racial injustices that have been happening and depending on where you live, um, 
may have been more impacted than others by it. So a lot of that's been taking a toll on our advisors because students are could be showing up to school that's um, showing up to the school having some major effects on what's happening. And so, um, of course, we're being kind to them, but we uh, have to, you know, remember to be kind to ourselves as well and being willing to talk with our colleagues and having safe spaces for for us to, to talk about what's happening. And then um, also creating spaces if your college or university isn't creating spaces, uh, create spaces so your students can have um, somewhere to talk or um, or at least going back to my mental health hat, um, being willing to, to refer them to help. Uh, psychological help if you see that they are indeed struggling and then being willing to seek psychological help for yourself too if you have noticed that, that you've been coming you are becoming overwhelmed or unwell because of what's happening too yeah which even just even being virtual a lot of that can just be difficult either to one take a day off or even when you're talking with your students to be able to see and maybe even assume what what might be going on in their world because we're not there physically with them to have a lot of those conversations. Yeah. And a lot of stuff that you've done, you've also been very involved in Nakata. And one of the things that you're doing right now is you're chairing the the PDR, the Probation Dismissal and Reinstatement uh, Community. What are some misconceptions that people might have about students who happen to be on academic probation or dismiss? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that they are not ready for college or that they're not taking it seriously. And again, going back to looking at those non-academic variables um, and how they impact academic success, um, hopefully programs that support students who are on probation or, or returning from dismissal have put resources into place that can, that can help those students versus just assuming that, you know, uh, they just lazy or they don't want to be bothered with college when there could be a mountain of things that uh, are preventing them from being successful at that time. Because it doesn't mean that they won't never be successful. They may just need resources put into place to help them be successful. Um, I'm interested in, I suppose, your um, your doctoral studies and, and that journey. Um, can you talk a little bit around, I suppose, what your your particular, um, you know, study was on and how you found the the journey towards getting a, a doctorate of education? Well, um, let's see. I finished a graduate certificate in college and university teaching before I decided to go in to get my doctorate degree. And one of the things that, or one of the reasons I wanted to shift from social work, which a lot of people ask me that question, like you just, you could have just went and got a degree in social work, but I, I wanted to impact education and, and, and really be seen as an expert in the field to be able to make an influence and, and, and make an impact. So um, that was an interesting journey because I hadn't been in school in like, I guess, 10 years. And then I was like, oh, here I am. <laughs> but what I found is that social work and education address a lot of similar issues related to um, inequality, um, issues of fairness. So I so I really found that I that I can contribute um, despite not having like a bachelor's or a master's in in education. So again, wanting to really marry the my two interests, that's when I decided to get my degree um, and focus specifically around mental health concerns 
And then um, at first I wanted to interview students and their perception of resources, which I still may do that. But I decided to start with faculty and then my colleagues, academic advisors. So really looking at what they knew about mental health, were they, were they able to recognize when a student is becoming unwell? And then were they confident enough to um, offer initial support and then refer them to resources? And so my so I did a mixed method study. So I, I looked at I looked at data, um, but then but then having a chance to talk with them about their reactions to students was very eye opening to me. Um, a, lot, a lot of them shared their own struggles with mental health. They talked about family members with mental health disorders and how that helped them when they saw a student that was becoming unwell. Um, and so I hope to continue that that work, but also uh, on campus, but also looking at uh, interventions that support K-12 education in, in Detroit as well. Nice. And you've been mentioned a couple of times like equity and some of the injustices that, that have been going on in the world or especially like within the U.S. Now, one of the presentations that you were part of that you presented on was titled Social Activism, How Advisors Can Be an Ally for Student Movements. And tied to that is like the student activism, the social change. And one of the questions that was in, in the abstract in the conference program was, you know, as academic advisors, how can we encourage students to see themselves as agents of change? So can you talk more about that, how advisors can help encourage students, but then also how advisors can be agents of change and also be allies? Yeah, I think I did that presentation, like, actually, and I believe I did it in Ireland, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Uh, so that was fun. Uh, yeah, but so that presentation came about my colleagues, who, who I'm still very close to now. Uh, we served as advisors for several student groups. And what we noticed is that students, um, one, really wanted to see us see us present and not just behind our desks. So we would attend, you know, some of their student group sessions and give them a space to talk about issues they were passionate about. And because we um, were employees of the university, we were able to advocate for things that they wanted to see happening on, on campus. And, and I think that's where advisors come in um, to play because we, we don't have to per se be out there holding the, the picket uh, or the, the, the signs and things, but we can encourage students how to peacefully protest or peacefully write letters to administrators when they see things um, that they want to address on their campus. And so I, I found that space very rewarding to be able to tell students, um, you know, this is the way you um, safely and uh, respectfully advocate for this, or um, this is the person that you talk to when you see an see a issue in the classroom. So being able to help them see how the university is structured and where they can um, become advocates either for a cause, um, so cause advocacy, or for a case, so like a one-on-one -on -one student issue, they can become advocates for that as well. I remember that presentation. I was at that in, in Dublin for Nakata's uh, international conference. That was, I think, the, the first time I, I, I met you and uh, your colleagues. Um, yeah. I suppose building a little bit on that then, um, I, I'm wondering, in terms of, I know you you work with um, an organization, the Union, um, in in Detroit. Maybe you could talk a little bit about um, the work there and and your involvement. 
Sure. So um, I've been working with them, I believe, since 2015. And it really stems from, again, me wanting to not just be um, in the academy without making an impact in the community. And in Detroit, you know, there there's so much happening. Uh, so it's progression, but there's there's still lots of need. So um, because I'm in a, a place where I'm where I do have connections and resources, it's been something that I've always wanted to say a part of me was giving back to Detroit. And so the union, um, well, at one point they were like across the street from my school. So <laughs> it made it really easy to get involved, but now they're a little bit further away. But nonetheless, they uh, provide in-school support to adolescents. Um, so uh, the students are within the Detroit public school community. And I graduated from Detroit public school. So that's personal to me too. Uh, so they provide prevention programming inside the schools. And they also uh, do some work in the community with African-American boys too. So uh, at one point I was just on their, not just, but I was on their advisory board. So um, as an advisory board member, we would have like maybe uh, every three months we would have a meeting and they would update us on like their programming, its, its impact and ways in which we can volunteer. And so um, in my intro to social work class, my students have to do volunteer work. So that was interesting to me because I was able to like tell my students about the union and get them involved. So first it was just like, hey, here's some students that will be interested in some work. And and then I just really, you know, fell in love with, with what they're doing and the impact they're making in African-American adolescents. So I started helping on some of their evaluation efforts. And I also, um, so they have a, a contract with Detroit Public Schools where they're able to provide parent training um, and because of my background in mental health and trauma, I'm one of their key uh, facilitators. So I do parent trainings uh, for them. Uh, and that's been rewarding, too. So, again, my my overarching thing is like really never to forget where I came from. And if there's an agency that's doing some good work in Detroit that I can pair with, that I can get folks at Wayne State to be interested in pairing with me on, then, then, I, then I just want to continue to do that. That's awesome. Like there's so much like a, it's like a cycle and you're, a lot of it's giving back and, you know, you're attached to so many different projects and everything is connected to, in this case, like people or students. And one of the things that you're also part of, you know, because you're talking about being, being part of different boards and different committees, like you're also part of Makata's research committee, like you're a member on that. And can you talk about some of the goals of like the research committee? And also, can you help demystify research for people? Because sometimes, you know, when people think of research, they have their, a certain definition of what they think it is. And, you know, and some might have anxiety thinking about research. So is there anything you can talk about to, to help with that? Well, first, I have to say for a long time, I probably was in that category. <laughs> and sometimes when I'm, <laughs> when I'm at those research committees with Nakata, I mean, Wendy is wonderful. But sometimes I'm like, dang, do I belong here? Like, those people are so smart. <laughs> and they know so much. Uh, but um, the purpose of that committee is really to increase um, scholarship 
around academic advising among our peers. So for us to be able to publish and write about the scholarship of academic advising, and I know they give out grants uh, or we give out grants uh, for individuals who who uh, who want to uh, put on uh, or do um, a project that that looks at an issue related to advising or or student success. Um, books have been pu- uh, or or in the process of being published that looks at uh, the scholarly inquiry around academic advising and. After I got over the, am I supposed to be here? Uh, I really enjoy, you know, uh, what they what they talk about and how they look at advising from so many different perspectives. So philosophies, humanities, and social science, and then um, seeing how that relates to um, academic advising. So it's pretty cool. Um, I enjoy uh, learning from my colleagues on that committee. Well, I think for listeners to hear that that you had some self-doubt when you initially came on will be refreshing because, I mean, you have published quite a bit, you've presented quite a bit, you've done so much work. Um, so I, I think it, they can see that you had the doubts, but you, you overcame it and, and are making such uh, contributions. I suppose one of the things I'm also interested in in hearing a little bit more about your participation. We've um, Matt was obviously uh, part of the Emerging Leaders Program. We've had others on the podcast who've been part, but you were uh, um, went through the Emerging Leaders Program as well. Can you talk a little about your experience in that? So that was really my introduction per se to Nakata. <laughs> um, I had like attended one conference in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I think I like volunteered to be the photographer or something. <laughs> so it wasn't like much participation prior to uh, prior to seeing the call for emerging leaders. And um, just thinking that would be a good way for me to get to know other advisors um, across the globe and also make an impact in um, Nakata. So I was actually really surprised. Like I I just told my story in the application about growing up in Detroit and how that translated to now being a woman of color in the academy and what did that look like and how I wanted to support um, more people that look like me in leadership roles in the Kata and in advising in general. And and, um, yeah, and then I was like, oh, wow, I got selected. (laughs) So I was pretty happy about that. and. had some really good experiences. Um, what I like about the Emerging Leaders Program is that once you're kind of a part of that family, you just become indeed a part of that family. So when I go to conferences, I remember um, going to like a Region 5 conference, that's more that's more locally, and someone that I knew in a kind of, she was like, oh, hey, how you doing? They gave me a hug, and I was like, oh, wow, like we really are like, okay, we in this together. <laughs> uh, but, I, but I grew to uh, really appreciate that. Um, and then um, Dr. Alexander, who you've had on the call, and Loxley um, have become really good friends of mine because we all uh, were were mentees in the Emerging Leaders Program together. So they gave me some new colleagues to bounce ideas off of and present together. So it so it continues to benefit me professionally, and um, hopefully I'm living up to its mission, which is um, getting us involved in leadership within um, Nakata as well. 
Well, and speaking of that, I mean, March 15th is the deadline for applications for the Emerging Leaders Program. So do you have any advice for anyone who might be interested in applying, whether applying as a emerging leader or as a mentor? Uh, as an emerging, I can talk about both. As an emerging leader, I think uh, just seeing the value that, that you can bring to Nakata. Um, so looking at diversity broadly and then uh, just thinking about your, kind of like what you guys asked me, thinking about your story and, and how you got into the academy and and what impact you may have made in certain areas and, and, and how that translates to being a leader within Nakata. Um, and yeah, and just go for it. <laughs> um, just they, they have, I feel like they have, I don't know what type of rubric they put together, but they, but they're really good at matching you to a mentor who, um, like my mentor, Kyle Ellis, uh, has still be, be a, is still a huge supporter of mine. He still texts me and I'm always surprised like, oh, that's like a couple of years ago. And he still checks up on me <laughs> and we still set up Zoom calls and, and he just been a great support. So um, and then so that just leads to looking at being a mentor. I don't think you have to be like an expert in like um, mentoring or or have, you know, I think just being willing to be there for that person and let that person um, talk about what they're interested in. And then if and then I guess it will be good for you for you to know about Nakata and know where that person's interest can be best plugged into. Um yeah, so I always talk about the Emerging Leaders Program and how it really uh, springboarded my um, my participation in the Kata. So we've spoken to you, I suppose, a little bit about in terms of supporting students um, during COVID. And um, now as we begin to hopefully look towards the vaccines rolling out and potentially, you know, campuses reopening for the, the new academic year, is that something that you've begun to, to think about? And is there any kind of a, a pro, particular approaches you'll be taking to help support students as they transition back to campus life? So that's a good question. Um, our university has had serious talks about us returning uh, to campus, uh, but being mindful of, you know, our, 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 our campus is in the heart of Detroit and it was like really hard hit um with COVID and um so they so they've taken a really uh strategic and cautious approach to bringing us back to campus. Uh but uh so I won't be doing academic advising. So I don't think I'll be on like the 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 list of people that will be coming back right away. Um so there is that, but the work that I do around with faculty advising and interdisciplinary education, I'm not sure when we will actually start back doing that face to face because that has its own set of uh, restrictions and precautions that as a university, I'm, I'm not sure if they will, would allow us to move right back into going into homeless shelters and providing uh, inter, interdisciplinary care. So it's probably more to come to that and, and maybe someone who probably is more directly um, or, you know, has more of a direct uh, interface with students, maybe a good person to ask that question to. But I think my role, my work will probably still be more online because I think it was moving in that way anyway, because I was moving to faculty 
and not having to be on campus so much. Your pinned uh, tweet on your uh, Twitter account uh, is uh, it's a, it's a great quote. It's when people see my life, I hope they associate me with good deeds. Is, can you t- talk to talk to me? Because it, it, clearly you live that. But I'm just wondering, where, where did that come from? That's a good question. <laughs> um, but, I mean, that's just who I am. Like, I want to want to leave a mark on whether it's Nakata, whether it's Wayne State, whether it's Detroit. I want to leave a mark of doing good. Um, and making an impact, even, even if it's just one student, uh, one organization, helping them see their data better. Uh, I just want to be able to, uh, when people, first of all, my name is unique anyway, so it's kind of hard to uh, um, um, hide behind, like, oh, it's a bunch of Catherines, you know, it's Chantalia. So when, so when people hear the name, I, I, I hope that they think about me as the person that um, has has done something good and has made an impact in whatever setting they may know me in. Yeah, and I will say that you have done that. I mean, just from listening to you right now, you know, answering these questions for for this podcast, like you have done a lot and you are continuing to do a lot. And, and it has an impact on every student, faculty member, staff member, whether it's, you know, at Wayne State, another institution or within Nakata. So it's definitely been a joy having you on this podcast. And if anyone is interested in reaching out to you or has any questions about anything that was talked about today, how can they get in contact with you? Well, my email, uh, Chantalia at Wayne.edu, or they can follow me on Twitter. I try to keep it updated. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I would love to connect with others who are interested in um, any of the areas I talked about today, uh, interventions that work on in, in higher education settings or, or K-12 settings, uh, organizing students to do good work in the community, uh, mental health related issues. I'm open to conversations and collaborations with others. It was brilliant to speak with Chantalea. Her passion for education and for students was evident when I first saw her present in Dublin. So it was lovely to have the opportunity to talk with her about her teaching, her research and working in the community in Detroit. Our next guest is Peter Hagen. Dr. Peter L. Hagen is Associate Dean of General Studies and Director of the Center for Academic Advising at Stockton University in Galloway, New Jersey. He was the founding chair of the Nakata Theory and Philosophy of Academic Advising Commission, served as guest editor of the Nakata Journal for its fall 2005 issue, and was a member of the task force that wrote the concept of academic advising. For Nakata, he currently serves on the Publications Review Board and the Nakata Review's Editorial Board. He won the 2007 Virginia Gordon Award for service to the field of advising. He served as lead editor for a monograph, Scholarly Inquiry in Academic Advising, published by Nakata in March 2010. He is the author of The Power of Story, Narrative Theory in Academic Advising, published by Nakata in 2018, and gave the keynote address at the Nakata Annual Conference in Phoenix, Arizona. He was a keynote speaker at the 2020 UCAT Festival of Advising and Personal Tutoring and is the current co-editor of the Nakata Review. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Matt. Peter, we're delighted to welcome you and have the opportunity to chat to you. And 
We usually begin the interview by, I suppose, talking to the guests about how they found their way into advising into higher ed. And the, we were talking to Kevin Thomas recently, and he referred to it as uh, somebody's origin story, uh, which I thought was a lovely way of, uh, of phrasing it. He was like, ah, oh, yes, the origin story part. So I suppose I'm asking you about your, your origin story, how you found yourself um, in higher ed, Peter. Sure. Um a lot more people in your younger generation are doing it, what I would say, the right way. You're, uh, there are many folks who are out there pursuing a degree of one sort or another with the goal of going into academic advising. They might have had a good academic advising experience themselves and so are pursuing a master's degree in higher education or counselor education. And now, of course, there's this new PhD program woohoo, in academic advising. So... Uh, a lot more people in your generation, if I may say your generation, <laughs> are doing it in a way that makes more sense. But talking about my generation, uh, we sort of fell into it for, to a large extent. Um, it was not um, back in the 70s when I be began uh, uh, working in academic advising. And you guys were still a, a, a gleam in your parents' eyes. Um, there was no pathway to get to academic advising. Everybody realized it was a, a good thing to do, uh, but, but it didn't necessarily require specialized schooling. So we came to advising from a number of different backgrounds. My own origin story was I fell into it because, <laughs> this is embarrassing, uh, my GRE scores, Colin, do I need to explain those to you? Oh, I have, a, I have a reasonable idea. If you, if, if you want right. to give a brief for maybe listeners outside <laughs> the U.S., you can. You can. Okay. Uh, they're the graduate record exams. And my scores, when I pursued my uh, entrance to my uh, Master of Arts in English, my scores were not high enough to qualify to teach freshman composition. GRE is the graduate record exam. It's the thing that gets you in, or at least it used to, gets you into a graduate program. Well, mine were not quite high enough to qualify for, for being a, a teaching assistant in English composition. And so the uh, head of my department said, well, we have this other ass assistantship. You probably won't like it, but it's advising students in a general major in liberal arts. And I said, okay. I mean, I needed to do something. And I, so I took it, and the rest, as they say, is history. I loved it, and I, I, I loved it so much more than my colleagues who taught freshman composition loved doing what they were doing. We'd get together on a Saturday night, and they would be grumbling because they had to grade another, yet another set of papers. But I really, really loved academic advising. And I, uh, it's one of those things that, uh, I don't know, maybe you make the best of a bad situation, but it was quickly not a bad situation. I absolutely loved it. I'm glad it all worked out. I mean, sometimes it's like you just stumble upon it or you take a chance on something not knowing where it's going to take you. And then, yeah, like you said, the rest is history. Yeah. And now you're at Stockton University and <laughs> I guess kind of have a dual role, Associate Dean of General Studies, Director of the Center for Academic Advising. So what do those roles entail for you? Well, it all fits on one business card if you write it small. <laughs> so <clears throat> at Stockton, we have a school of general studies that houses the general courses that students take. In other words, to satisfy your science requirement here at Stockton, you don't take you know, baby bio 101 and 102. You take 
courses labeled general natural sciences and mathematics, same way in the arts and the humanities. Uh, you don't take the same course that lit majors take. You take something designed for uh, general purposes. So I am associate dean for the School of General Studies that oversees the offering of these, these courses, a separate cadre of courses for all students. Uh, director of the Center for Academic Advising, that's probably self-explanatory. I've got a staff of a, nine people, uh, six full-time advisors, and a couple of clerical people too. And uh, we, we advise, for the most part, students who don't know what they want to major in. That's a, that's a familiar theme, I'm sure. But also we advise where there is an overflow if there's too many students in our School of Health Sciences, we take on the, the surplus advising load. Same for the School of Business. Any place there's a surplus, we jump in and deal with, with those students. So the undecided, but surplus health sciences and surplus business as well. You know, we, we jump in where we're needed. Peter, I suppose for me and probably for people listening, you are synonymous with storytelling. You are synonymous with narrative where did that interest begin? Oh, I have to say it started back in high school English. Uh, I had the great fortune to have a series of wonderful teachers who were truly inspiring. So when I went to college at uh, Bucknell University in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, I became an English major. There was just no other choice for me. I never considered anything else uh, but English. Uh, so it, it started early on. And, and, and so I... I that Masters of Arts in Literature or English that I, that I spoke of finally earned it after a few years uh, while working as an academic advisor. And following that, I made academic advising my full-time career. But I kept seeing ways that those two things intertwined. For example, I'd be sitting there and Cordelia would walk into my office straight out of King Lear, you know, overburdened by by concerns of the family, unable to take care of her own life well because she had maybe an aging parent to take care of. And that kept happening. Uh, Hamlet, I can't tell, me, tell you how many times Hamlet visited my office. You know, a little bit pompous, <laughs> full of himself, feeling like the, the world centers around him. Uh, so I, I kept seeing resonances between literature and advising. After all, in advising, we're helping students create at least an important chapter in the story of their own lives. And uh, in, in the book you referred to, I referred to that as the uh, constructing of Bildungsroman, which is a story of education, a life story, a, life, a story of specifically education. And that, I think, is one of the most important things we advisors do, is to help students discover and tell their own stories in a way that resonates with them. You know, we have all these predictive analytics that, to help us out, but I'm probably going to get shot down for saying this, but predictive analytics seems like a contradiction in terms to me. So I know people mean well, and I have no particular quarrel with statistics. But when we only rely on statistics and forget the stories of the students that sit before us, then I think we're lost. And in an interview that you had um, about one of your books, you brought up a story of when you were asked in a job interview whether advising was an art or if it was a science. And, you know, you had said that you believe it's a blending of the two or that it's a perspective on the humanities. What led you to to this view? Well, when I was asked that question, that was at, an, at a job interview. Uh, 
and it was being asked by somebody who was a scientist. Uh, this was for the Division of Undergraduate Studies at Penn State, which is a unit that deals with undecided students. It was huge. And uh, I knew that this person was, you know, a, a quantitative scientist. And so I was pretty sure <laughs> that, uh, that it was a loaded question. And I really wanted to say, well, come on, it's an art, not a science. Get, get with it. But uh, I wanted the job. And so I, I, I think I said, well, it's a blend of the arts and the sciences. And, you know, the more we go on, I think the more I realize that's true. I was, I was speaking truth, although I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> I, was, I was cravenly <laughs> trying to land a job. But uh, I think it is an art and a science. But I think we need to go further than that. It's also in the humanities. Obviously, it's in the social sciences as well. And when that former colleague was referring to, I got the job, by the way, so he's now a former colleague. When that former colleague was referring to science, he was really thinking of social science. But I think that we're going to start seeing that academic advising can be spoken of in terms of natural sciences as well. That might seem like a radical thought. But right now, I'm part of a team that's working on the second edition of Scholarly Inquiry in Academic Advising. And uh, one of the editorial teams, Samantha Gazarian, is writing a chapter on how to approach academic advising from, through the lenses of the natural sciences. Uh, think Things like uh, uh, cognition and you know, brain science has a lot to do with, with academic advising. We are, after all, constructing... It's, it's easy to say we're constructing stories, but what, what that really means is we're constructing minds, brains. So uh, Dr. Gazarian is uh, hot on the trail of a, of a chapter on advising using the natural sciences. We're also going to have a chapter on advising using methods from the arts, of all things. Oh, my God. Yes, the world's gone to hell in a handbasket. And uh, I'm going to be contributing a chapter similar to the one I did 10 years ago on looking at advise, advising from the perspective of the humanities. And Peter, I suppose, I mean, that kind of shows the way in which things have developed uh, and changed over the, the course, you know, of um, advising his history. But I suppose I'm interested in, in you, you know, you talked about um, that job interview and the way in which you, you viewed it then and you knew it was viewed in other ways and, and the way in which we've kind of come to, to see it in different ways and we're exploring. But I suppose, can you talk to me a little bit about your your own um, journey maybe uh, around that? And I suppose the the way in which, um, you know, you you have come to, to view the, the changes in, in advising. Certainly. Um, to some extent, those changes are reflected in Nikata itself. 20 years ago, uh, where does that put us? 2001, I guess. Well, going back, I guess, 22 years in 1999, we were just beginning to to see the possibility of viewing advising through the lenses of the humanities. There were some some rather forward-looking presentations at that conference. I think it was in Denver, and uh, and so a group of us sort of hung out with the people that were making those presentations, and we got together in the hotel bar. Oh. Kel Horror, of all places, and realized that there needed to be conversations within Nakata uh, about the humanities and about specifically philosophy, which doesn't limit itself to the humanities. And that's when the Theory and Philosophy group got born in a hotel bar somewhere in Denver. 
And for a while, it, it didn't catch on. But now, as I'm sure you know, it is one of the strongest, uh, they call them now communities within Nakata. And uh, right now it's in the hands of uh, CJ Venable. And uh, it's, it's going strong. It has, I think, thousands of members. I'm not really sure. So what we've seen in the past 22 years is a shift towards far more open-minded perspectives, open-minded ways to view advising. 22 years ago, it was madness to think about advising in terms of the humanities. We were a small group of people you know, lurking in the shadows in a hotel bar <laughs> to, to, uh, to talk about this, but we were, there, there was no sense in which we were accepted by the mainstream, which back then, and for many years after that, was squarely in the social sciences, more specifically the quantitative social sciences. It took a while to get past looking at advising just in quantitative terms. Uh, there was a, a time back then when the Nakata Journal would not accept anything that wasn't quantitatively based. They're kind of moving back to that these days, which is why the Nakata Review is now on the scene and we're trying some new things. So I would say that that, that development uh, was reflected in Nakata itself. As Nakata grew to accept new approaches, so I think did the field of advising grow to accept new approaches. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, nowadays more open but do you feel that there's still some misconceptions regarding that? Like whether it's when people think about the humanities or let's say scholarly inquiry or they think of scholarly research, you know, you might have people that might just think numbers. Yes, right. Predictive analytics, as it were. There's no denying in this day and age, certainly in the United States, and I suspect it's that way over on your side of the pond as well, Column. But we're all in trouble. Uh, economically. This, this pandemic has taken all higher education institutions downward in terms of available resources. So there's, there's a, a, a rush, it seems to me, to, to find comfort in things that we can predict. Numbers. We want to know, we want to know where we're headed. We want to know what's possible. And so I certainly don't, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't want to stand in the way of this rush towards quantitative uh, analysis, but I still think there's so much more to the story. Yeah, we're looking, for, we're looking for the easy answers, and the easy answers have always been numbers crunching. I, I regret saying that out loud, but I, uh, <laughs> I think we need to get back on the narrative track. I suppose, Peter, one of the things that I, when I was reading, um, you know, in, in preparation for this was, I suppose you, you've written a bit about, um, and I like about the, and because it struck me around kind of our philosophy of, of education, right? The, the, the viewpoints. And I suppose it, it's thinking like, if you're passionate about education, work in education. But, but I think this probably links into to your other point, um, because you, you talked about how if your philosophy education was about education in maybe the liberal arts and suddenly you kind of find yourself working in a, a student success center, then you're, you're not going to have a good time, maybe, because you're, you're potentially at loggerheads, you know, with the, the specific aims and objectives of, of that center. Can you maybe talk to us a little bit in, in relation to your your views uh, around that? What you've just described, Colm, is a story that's headed for a tragedy. The advisor's story in that case is headed for tragedy. If we have an advisor who, um, well, 
is more on the um, I coined the word mathesis for the for this book. You're, I think you're referring to mathesis, uh, where, where it's you believe in education for education's sake. Probably no one in the world holds that in its truest form. We we all love education, but you know, it costs money for crying out loud. And so, uh, yeah, I don't think there's anybody who uh, who subscribed to that just by itself. So, and but an advisor who comes from a liberal arts tradition, let's say, who loved learning for its own sake, who loved the liberal arts uh, for their own sake, and finds himself or herself or themselves in a devising situation where you're judged by the number of students that you can get graduated, you've got choices to make. You either compromise your idealis, ideal, idealism to graduate students, or you don't compromise, and you maybe don't fare quite so well as your colleagues who don't quite have the same high standards. Yeah, I think I think we all have a philosophy of, of advising. And uh, if I recall, I'm sort of desperately looking for it in the book that I have right here in front of me. But I, I created a sort of a grid. And it seems to me that we advisors do need to become aware of where we, where we stand in terms of our advising philosophy. On the opposite side of mathesis, which... Mathesis, by the way, is a Greek word that gives us our word mathematics. It's study for the pure sake of studying. On the opposite side of mathesis is praxis, which I know we use in a different way. But a person having a pure praxis approach, and there's nobody that does have a pure approach like that. But it's a it's a continuum between so sort of learning for learning's sake or learning for a practical purpose. Where are you on that on that axis? It's an important question to ask yourself. There's another axis, and we can think of it as a Cartesian uh, coordinates. I'm not going to find it in the books. I'm not even going to try. I'm doing this from memory, flying without a parachute. Um, some advisors feel that the the, uh, the purpose for for higher education is to is for the fostering of the community, uh, <laughs> and others think it's for the individual. So the individual versus the community is another tension. I've called them dialectical tensions because they are uh, a dialectic, um, uh, opposing opposing vectors, you might say, in a, in a Cartesian plane. Do you do it? Is your philosophy for of education for its for its for the individual, or is it for the community? Is it for the pure learning, or is it for practical purposes? And you can think of that as a a four way grid with vectors going in two directions. Where you place yourself on that Cartesian coordinate is a very important thing because it's going to affect how you approach your job, how you see your students, and it's going to let you uh, sleep at night. Do you feel, though, that advisors, like, it's it's fluid, that you could one year, one day, you, you feel a certain way that you think it's more about for the community, and then a year later, you're more of the individual side of it? Sure. I don't think anybody is in one place forever and ever. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a good thing to assess oneself as to where one is right now. And if you change jobs and are, are uh, in an advising center that is more about getting <clears throat> getting jobs for the for the community, maybe you're working for uh, a social work department. It's easy to see that your philosophy might shift towards community engagement, because after all, you're you're building helping to build student stories for community engagement. So no, it's not a fixed thing. Uh, a fixed ideology that you stay with for the rest of your life. 
but I think it behooves us to become as aware as possible of where we are right now and match that up against the ideology, if you will, of this, of the institution that we work for. And if those two things are at odds, again, I'd say that's, that's a tragedy in the making. Well, if, if I can ask you then about maybe moving on to, to one of your great loves about, and, and tied to advising, um, because you, when we were preparing for, for this and I was emailing you to set it up, you told me that if there was one book you could get every advisor to read, it would be James Joyce's Ulysses. So can you talk to me a little bit about, about your love of Joyce and, and, and Ulysses and how you feel it relates to advising? How long do we have? <laughs> this is going to take a while, but I'd be happy to try and, uh, and, and keep the time down to a manageable length. So let me set this up a little bit, Colm. Uh, in, in, uh, in college, I majored in English, and I did not read Ulysses while I was still in college. I was, urged, I was urged to, but I never got around to it. Uh, but I did take Greek, and I absolutely loved studying ancient Greek. And I absolutely loved studying the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, so when I learned that James Joyce's Ulysses was structured to map onto the 24 books of the Odyssey, I was hooked. I had to read it. I knew I should have read it by then, right? Four years in a literature major and never read Ulysses. Shame, shame, shame on me. But but shortly after I graduated from my baccalaureate degree, I uh, actually my brother-in-law gave me a copy of Ulysses, and I read it, and I loved it. Because it does map onto the 24 chapters of the Odyssey. Each of James Joyce's chapters is different the story maps onto the story of Ulysses as well, even though it takes place in just one day. Uh, the Odysseus, Ulysses, whatever you want to call him, his story lasted for 20 years, wasn't it? It took him 20 years to come back from the Trojan Wars and to be reunited with his wife Penelope back on the island of Ithaca. But James Joyce's Ulysses takes place in one day. And if I'm not mistaken, Colin, is that June 20 something, 1904? It, yeah, a, li- a little, a little bit earlier in June, but yes, you're, 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 you're <laughs> correct in, in that. Yes, uh, Le- Le- Leopold, it's all in, uh, in one, one day, uh, in, in, in Dublin. Um, uh-huh. and, uh, yes, it, it maps on as you, as you said. So, they call that day whatever actual day it is. Bloomsday. Bloomsday. Bloomsday, yes. <laughs> because one of the main characters is Leopold Bloom, kind of an anti-hero, although he's the character that maps onto Odysseus or Ulysses. Uh, and so the, the story is about his peregrinations through the city of Dublin in this one day in 1904. Uh, and, uh, of course, there's... Telemachus, too, the son of Odysseus, uh, in the book Ulysses, he's Stephen Dedalus, who has showed up earlier in a portrait of the artist as a young man, which many people have read, but not many people have read Ulysses, I found. Uh, have you two read Ulysses? Yeah, I, ha- I, I had to. I, ha- I feel I was too young to properly appreciate it because... They, you read it very early in Ireland. We it was on the curriculum in in high school. I felt I was a little bit too young to truly appreciate it. But there are things that from it that have 
stuck with me. And one of the things actually is with inter- when when yeah. the students come to, to Dublin, I always bring them out to the 40 foot um, to where Ulysses begins to the Martello Tower and talk to them about that. And, and they can essentially, we, we don't walk at all, but we begin the the walk that Leopold Bloom begins to um, back into Dublin. And I don't know if you know, like, so, I mean, it was, some of it was obviously based on Joyce's own experience because he had taken up residence in this Martello tower and he was staying with his friend, Oliver St. John Gogarty and Gogarty basically got fed up because Joyce wouldn't leave. And so he uh, essentially um, fired a, a couple of warning shots over Joyce's head. Um, and, and Joyce took that as an eviction notice, as he would. Um, and so, so you, the fascinating thing to me, I suppose, about Ulysses was the way in which Joyce was able to kind of tie his own experience into, um, you know, this ancient um, mythology, and it's often said here, Peter, and, and you probably heard the expression: you could spend a year on a page of Joyce because everything has a you know uh, a subtext, and you can he, he, there's different meaning within everything. Bronze by gold, heard the, heard the hoof irons stilly ringing, thun 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 thun. What do you do with that? But I, we still haven't gotten to the answer the question: what any of this has to do with advising? So. If I might take a stab at that, yes, it's a tour de force, but each one of those 24 mega chapters is in a different narratological style. Each one is different. Uh, some of them are sparsely written. One is question and answer. One seems to be drawn from headlines in the newspaper. And the last, the last book, the last chapter in Ulysses is the chapter that is Molly Bloom's soliloquy. Molly Bloom, the character who maps on Penelope in the actual Odyssey, uh, is lying in bed, and we, if you will, hear her thoughts. And it goes on in one sentence for page after page after page, well worth reading. So what does this have to do with advising? Absolutely nothing at all directly. But I think what James Joyce has succeeded in doing is to write about narrative itself, to write a story that is about storytelling. Uh, at, at one point, he summons up the Thousand and One Nights uh, and other, other great storytellers. In the Molly Bloom section, it's her thoughts. We're hearing her, her train of thought, her interior monologue, as it were. And I, I think I wrote this to you, Colm. It's, it's something that is literally impossible to do, to capture the stream of consciousness of anybody, not you know, ourselves included, because in the time it takes to write it down, you've already lost the stream of consciousness. James Joyce tried to do the impossible in that last chapter, and in a sense, he failed. But it was a noble failure because it, it pointed to how important our interior narratives are. So why is it important that every advisor should read James Joyce's Ulysses I think you will see the different ways that you can approach storytelling. It's a story about story. Now, you were the keynote speaker for the 2018 Nakata Annual Conference. And during that keynote, you had mentioned having worked at Penn State and being tasked with raising the discourse of academic advising. However, you, know, you had said you were never given 
an end date or in terms of when you could say mission accomplished, I think is what, what you had said. But you found a way to put it on the rest of us. So how how what what do we do with that? What are your tips for us? <laughs> yeah, that was my way out, Matt. <laughs> uh that that person you're describing is uh Dr. Eric White, who at the time was the director of the Center for, sorry, the director of the Division of Undergraduate Studies at Penn State. And uh, I absolutely adored working for him. And yes, one day he did summon me to his office and said, I mean, he looked me right in the eye and pointed at me and said, I want you to do what you can to raise the level of discourse about academic advising. So one slight correction there, Matt, raise the level of discourse uh, about academic advising. Back then in the 70s and, and 80s, yeah, it was... It was not the, shall we say, the noble profession that it is now. Uh, you know, back then, I'm exaggerating here, but it, it was felt that any damn fool with a college bulletin can do it. We know different now, and we knew different then, but that's what he was trying to, to get me to do, to think about how to raise the level of discourse about academic advising. So uh, I've, I've been trying to do it ever since. Honest, I mean, it's... It's not an injunction. I just said, oh, well, he's just fooling around. I took it seriously. And uh, I've tried to do that ever since. How do you raise the level of discourse about academic advising? We well, talk about it in noble terms. You talk about it in ways that are not uh, the, the sort of mindset where, you know, any, any damn fool with a college bulletin can do it. Uh, I also think we need to raise it on beyond predictive analytics. I've got nothing against statistics. Please don't get me wrong. I'm going to get hate mail. I just know it. But the fact is statistics don't tell the whole story. Statistics seek to tell a conglomeration of stories in one fell swoop. Uh, raising the level of discourse, I believe, should continue. And yes, Matt, I lay that injunction on you and column. You're not off the hook. Raising the level of discourse means seeing the ways in which we can ennoble the practice and the thinking, the writing, the philosophy about academic advising. So what we're trying to do now with this scholarly inquiry, second version book that will be on the, on the newsstands in a year or so, uh, to what I'm trying to do along with my, my uh, co-editor, Julie Givens-Voller with the Nakata Review, trying to look at different ways of, of looking at uh, academic advising. Raising the level of discourse. I think that it's it's a it's a noble undertaking, and I think it's it's worthwhile, and it's an endeavor that all advisors should uh, engage in. I suppose, Peter. Sorry. Well, you're you're doing it right now, both of you. You are by having this podcast. Dare I say it? Raising the level of discourse about academic advising. I haven't listened to them all. I've only listened to a handful. I'm, I'll confess. But I was delighted by the ones that I, I heard. And you're going after some, some, some big names that are out there, but people that are not as well known as also. You are collecting the stories of adv advisors that, that, dare I say it, that matter out there so that they can tell their stories and lift up new advisors, advisors new to the field, uh, the, the ones who are going to listen devotedly to each and every podcast when it comes out. I, okay. <laughs> I, that was a faux pas. I should be listening to each podcast when it comes out. I haven't. But 
you certainly realize that uh, there is a generation that flourishes with podcasts as you're doing. You are now doing what I have enjoined you to do. You are raising the level of discourse about academic advising. You're creating a worldwide collection of stories. This is great. I'm really proud to be part of it. I interrupted you, I think. I'm sorry, Colin, but I had to, I had to say, you are doing it, baby. Well, <laughs> well that, thank you for, for your kind words. And I mean, that what we set out to do was to chronicle the stories uh, of, of advisors because there are so many people doing great work in in the field and not everyone i suppose gets a line a, a, the limelight shined upon them in the way maybe their work deserves to so um it's certainly about speaking to to as many people um as as we could um i'm kind of peter um maybe t- you know um I, something that struck me earlier when you were talking about like the, the good fortune and um I was um, Andrew, there's a guy named Andrew Brandt, he, right? He was the VP for football operations at the Green Bay Packers. And he had this idea about embracing serendipity. And it, it, it's basically about taking advantage of good fortune when it comes along because things aren't linear and there, there will be ups and downs. So when the good, when good fortune comes along, you take advantage of it. And you talk to us actually just before we start recording about a little bit about like some of the higher points in, in your career. Um, and you've told us that, you know, what you're, you're working on, I suppose for you, um, you know, this can be maybe thinking about your own work or thinking about other things that advice that you might have for younger um advisor or people just beginning in the advising field are there outside of that that noble call um to 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 raise the the level of discourse um are there pieces of advice that you could um share um from your your own journey well that's a long question <laughs> could you repeat the question please no <laughs> Uh, what I've been the, the reason I, I've been distracted, Colin. I'm sorry because I wanted to look up where this is said in Beowulf, and uh, so here it is in Old English: "Weird of Nereth, unfanya erla thon his elen der." And uh, translated to modern English, it's "Fortune favors the bold." Uh, literally, fortune saves the the warrior who's not already doomed uh, as long as his courage prevails. Fortune favors the bold. So that football coach, and I notice you have a football behind you, Colin. What, what's up with that? That's, that's an American thing. Uh, fortune favors the bold. I, I think that when you find yourself with an opportunity, you make the best of it that you can. Be bold. Be bold. Um, yes, unless you're already fated to die, right? <laughs> fortune, fortune favors the warrior uh, who is bold, as long as he's not already fated to die. Beowulf. I had to look it up. I cheated, Matt. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, right. it's what the internet's for. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure if I answered your question, Colin, but I guess I've tried to take advantage of opportunities that have come my way. I think any interview that contains some Beowulf is uh, is fantastic. That was uh, that was one of my... Uh, <laughs> th- the first things that I studied in... Um, when I went into to university was uh, we had a, he came, a lecturer, he came in, uh, Prof Imano Caragon, he was just referred to as Prof. And he 
taught Beowulf and it was riveting. So to hear you share that uh, brought back a lot of memories. So that was very good. I've always loved the, uh, you know, the uh, things like the Iliad, the Odyssey, Beowulf. There's a word for those as a genre that escapes me right now, but the, the long poems, uh, the heroic ones, I've, I've always loved them. So you studied all English too. Cool. What we guard in your diem, Elden Fremedon, Frum your Frenon, is how it starts. So, okay, pop quiz column. What does Beowulf, what might Beowulf have to do with academic advising? You threw me a curveball saying, what does Ulysses have to do with academic advising? Back at you, my brother. What might? Maybe, maybe the answer is nothing. But what might studying literature like Beowulf have to do with academic advising? The tables are turned, uh, my friends. Now I'm the interviewer. <laughs> I, I think um, it, it ties back into what, what, you know, that piece around just that narrative and, and, and storytelling. And, yeah. you know, um, we, we love stories. And yeah. the, so I think that the way in which Beowulf gathers people around, like it was, it was funny being in that lecture hall. It brings me back. People, you'd, people would lean in. Right, because he he didn't speak from notes, and he did what you did. He he stood at the front, and he he spoke in this old old English, which we didn't understand at the time. And it was later, as you, you studied a bit more, you come to understand. But it it drew it it immediately drew you in, and and there was this fascination with it. Um, and it probably goes back to to me is that desire um, for to hear other people's stories and and for knowledge. Um, and I think to me, that is at the, for, that's at the heart of what I try and do with advising is to, to listen to the students' stories and to offer guidance and, and the knowledge that I can impart. Sometimes it's practical, sometimes it's less practical. But to, to me, um, that's, that's what it speaks to. Yeah. Well done. Uh, top marks for that one. <laughs> but further. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to think what they what they do in in Dublin. It's just top marks, right? How do I give you yeah. a? Yeah, 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 top top marks works. Top marks, but more than that, Beowulf tells a story. I'm winging it here, so we might be on thin ice. It tells the story of success. Uh, Beowulf goes through some trials and tribulations in its epic poem, is the genre. Sorry, I couldn't think of that before. Beowulf goes through trials and tribulations. He slays this horrible monster that has been feeding on the local village. And all is well. There's happiness in the valley. There's peace in the valley once again. But then, holy mackerel, there's this monster even worse than Grendel. It's Grendel's mother. And so what does it tell our students? I mean, if yeah, if you think you're doing okay, you're caught sleeping, and then comes the final exam, and you realize you didn't study enough, and it, it bonks you on the head. So yeah, it's the, the epic poems are, are among other things, uh, a way to, a way to uh, think about the course of one's life. Fortune favors the bold. I've never spoken those words in only old English or English to a student. I've never said, well, my young friend, fortune favors the bold, so get out there and study, damn it. But you know, we, we do offer advice kind of like that. Get back into the thick of the fray. You know you can do it. Be bold. I think that we probably could teach a course, maybe you and I, Colm, uh, 
on literature and advising. I don't think they're offering any such course at Kansas State in the doctoral program, but there could be such a course. I think that on the reading list, I'd want to put Pride and Prejudice as well as Ulysses. Because uh, Jane Austen does wonderful things with language. She says one thing and means something else. And that is a skill that we as, as advisors need to learn. Uh, and, and to be able to say, to, to know when our students are saying one thing and meaning something else. Yeah, I'd put Jane Austen on the reading list. A webinar a few years back. Yes. Nakata goes to the movies, right? Yes. And so yours, because yours was on Strictly Ballroom. And I think, you know, with that, it was more about, you know, how film can be used or show ways to implement that narrative approach. What made you choose Strictly Ballroom to use for that webinar? You've seen the film, right, Matt? Back, yeah, after I watched yeah. it, I, I, yeah, but that was 2016. So, yeah. It, it tells the story of somebody who is trying to uh, participate in an art form, in this case, ballroom dance, uh, in ways that are strictly in conformance with the rules set up by the, what is it, a Pan Pacific Grand Prix dance contest, which takes place in Australia. It's a wonderful film, Strictly Ballroom. And it's about the strictness of doing ballroom steps in a certain way. Yet the protagonist of this film, Scott Hastings, if I recall, uh, uh, realizes that uh, he has more to offer. And so he finds a way uh, to, to break out of the uh, stultifying rules of the Pan Pacific Grand Prix and dances his own steps. It's the liberation of a, of a person. And I think that's a story that we see played out or should be played out over and over again with our students, the liberation of a person. Uh, they may be dancing to a certain very rigorous steps. Well, my mom and dad said, I have to major in accounting, and I guess I want to do that too, because I want to have a job when I graduate. And so they go through the motions. But you, you meet with a, that same student and you realize, oh, they're their heart is in art, art history or something that they and their family would regard as impractical. Not many have the courage to break out of those prescribed steps and major in art history or whatever the, the case might be. But it's certainly a delight when you see it happen. Peter, I, I suppose there, there are people going to be listening. They're, they're going to, if they're interested in getting in touch with you in relation to Beowulf, in relation to your work, in relation to the Nakata Review or, or any of the, the myriad things that we have discussed, what would be the best way for them to get in touch with you? Oh, uh, e email. Uh, should I put it? Is there a chat in this? No, but we we can certainly put it in the in the um, the, the the show notes. But if you want, if you want to, I mean, if people can probably take take it down as they listen sure. as well. If you want, if you want to list it, okay. It's my first name separated from my last name by a dot, so it's Peter, P E T E R, dot Hagen, and that's spelled H A G E N at Stockton, S T O C K T O N dot edu peter.hagen at stockton.edu i'd be glad to hear from any of your listeners and it's you know yes we're still in COVID times but are you still part of the stockton faculty band <laughs> yes guilty as charged <laughs> <laughs> we although we haven't rehearsed in months i'm, I'm in two bands uh, <laughs> why am i laughing it's what keeps me sane 
music. <laughs> yeah, there's a keyboard over there and a piano back there. My 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 double bass is over in the corner. She's too big fit to fit into the picture anyway, and uh, she's very independent minded. Her name is Bertha. So I'm in. A, there is a Stockton faculty band, and we play rock and roll and oldies because we're all oldies. And uh, and I'm also in a band called Pan Gravy, which, as the name might imply, is all about kind of old timey Americana types of music, bluegrass, uh, and so on. Singer songwriter. And in that band, I do play the the stand up bass, which I love doing. <laughs> and are, can can we access recordings? Are there are they out in the universe? <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, I think so. Um, there's stuff on YouTube. If you uh, search for Stockton faculty band, you'll find uh, things from a concert we did a long time ago in, uh, in Atlantic city. Pan gravy also has some stuff on YouTube. Uh, so sure. Give it, <laughs> give it a look. Why am I still laughing? I, I don't know. I'm just delighted that you asked the question. I, I think that's the real me. All this other stuff we've been talking about, ah, that's something else. <laughs> but but my soul plays music. Yeah, then we'll have to have you on again. We'll just talk music the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've just, there's been some memorable conferences where we would bring our guitars, especially the regional ones. Region 2 is a hoot. And uh, so at Region 2 conferences, we'd bring guitars and sing in the in the hotel lobby <laughs> before they kicked us out. <laughs> It's harder to do when you when you travel by air, but uh, it would be great to do that at, a nas- at an annual conference or international. I I look forward to to being present for, for that. I mean, I think if <laughs> as we have we haven't met pro- properly in person, I think uh, uh, you know being present at a, a Peter Hagen jam session sounds uh, pretty good. And um, I just want to say to thank you for taking the the time to chat to myself and Matt. And uh, it's been fascinating as always. Uh, you know, I, I I knew it would be interesting. I knew we would cover a variety of different topics. And uh, just thank you for taking the time. I'm absolutely honored and delighted to do so, Colin. Uh, honored to be among this uh, group of persons who have done these podcasts in the past. So thank you for including me. We've talked about books. We've talked about films. Matt, I think you should think about uh, what's the one film that every advisor should see. But beyond that, I think that as advisors, we ought to think about what are our top five songs of all time and write them down. Take as much time as you like to think about your top five songs of all time and then reflect upon what that says about you as a person but what it also says about you as an advisor. Great questions to ponder from Peter during that interview, and I'm already looking forward to the second iteration of the Scholarly Inquiry in Academic Advising. Very true. Thank you again, Peter, and also to Chantalia and Charlie. And that wraps up this episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you don't already, subscribe to our podcast and also follow us on social media. That's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Advising Podcast. We'll be back soon for our next episode. In the meantime, take care. And as always, keep advising.